Hardcore Surf History. Surfing has often had an interesting relationship with its identity. The image of a surfer has had various connotations over the years, sometimes favorable, sometimes not. Being a surfer has at times been a distinction, but at other times, a stigma. But how important is surfing's image? Does it shape surfing's culture? Does it affect who takes up the sport? Does it impact on the actual experience itself? Do these questions even matter? When you're up on a wave, what surfing's image is probably doesn't even cross your mind. The image is nothing. But then sometimes, as the saying goes, image is everything. In London, I'm Jamie Brewer. And I'm Tyler Brewer in Brooklyn. This is Hardcore Surf History where we take a deep dive into surfing's past, present, and future. On this episode, we turn the mirror back on ourselves and take a long, hard, sobering look at the image of surfing. Then, after we stare long enough at ourselves, Jamie and I have a staring contest and try to stump my bro. All on Hardcore Surf History. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Staring competition. You and me. Staring competition. <laughs> you win. You always do. Goulet. You ever see that SNL skit with Will Farrell and he's playing Bob Goulet? Uh, no, I, I haven't, Tyler. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, I'll take your word for it and I'll check it out. <laughs> well, I mean, that actually, you know, staring at things, you know, kind of goes right into the whole idea of image, you know, the image mm-hmm. that reflects back on you and everything. And and we, we've talked about it before. We, you know, we've kind of talked about what got us attracted to surfing, mm-hmm. you know, and when we first started and kind of what surfing meant to us and, you know, what, you know, all that stuff. 
Um, but like I remember really clearly as a young pre-surfing person <laughs> hearing the term surfers, you know, and oh, the surfers were here and uh, the surfers did this. And it, it, it always was very evocative. It kind of made me feel different things. You know, I had like an image of what a surfer was. Um, you know, like when you first became interested in surfing, mm-hmm. did, did you have an image of what a surfer was? And keep in mind, I guess how you, I guess, you know, baby I mean, eight, nine, I, 10 years old, you know. I was younger because you got into it I mean, uh, when I was mm. probably like six or seven. And oh, yeah. so my memory's a little vague on it, but I think like, because it also is so skewed by you forcing me to watch amazing surf stories and Big Wednesday over and over. But, mm. you know, I think, um, I think for me, definitely, I feel like there was definitely, I, I have a very distinct memory of, Back to the Beach, the movie. Oh, the Frankie Avalon and yeah. Annette, like the the Beck in the Joe. future, like the, in the eighties, you know, eighties, and, and you know, and that had like uh, a certain impact, I think, on um, my image in some ways of a surfer. You know, when I was very young, at least, mm-hmm. and. Then, like when when I started watching all the surf movies, amazing surf stories, and and, and uh, tales of the seven seas, and all of that, like you know, then it was like Tom Kerr and Aki were were kind of that image for me, I think. And and then as you know, getting older, you know, and starting to hit teenage years or whatever, like I or wanting to act older, I would try to talk with a California accent to be like, "Yo, what's going on? How's it going?" and would get the surfer mm. haircut, the bowl cut kind of thing, and wearing uh, Baja, you know, sweaters and, you know, Rasta colors. And it was definitely influenced heavily by Surfer Magazine, late 80s style, I think. Ugg boots, <laughs> blonde hair, you know, mostly white, you know, men, basically. That was kind of the idea of what a surfer, I think, looked like in, in terms of like, that image but i don't think that was like i don't know i think that was the outward image at least well that's i mean that's i think a lot of people from from that era or actually probably a lot of eras would you recognize what you just described what like what like why did you want to emulate that image or take it on you know so much like what do you can you describe what it was about it uh well probably partly to seem cool like i mean i think because i wanted to to be cool with you and your friends and other surfers so you would see that and be like okay that's kind of how i need to act in order to you know fit in i think there was some of that um you know at a certain age of course you know, like we're talking like ages 10 to maybe 13 you know mm-hmm. um and I think like that was kind of you know wanting to fit in with with uh, with a certain group, and there was there was probably a certain appeal of like being somewhat rebellious. I think had mm. had something to do with it. I think that that kind of uh, you know anti-establishment kind of uh, vibe is very appealing to a youth. Like definitely, you know, when you're testing those limits anyway with adults and parents, you're 
you know, it definitely, I think, appeals to to younger audience for sure. And and I mean, gosh, like that that anti-establishment thing has been such a common theme uh, in surfing's history for a long period, long time. I think you know, there's always been outliers, people who are outside of society in some ways, or who have always rebelled against certain societal norms. And that's been, you know, all the way, you know, back to maybe even like Jack London, you know, kind of era even to, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's been so many of those surfers were, were considered beach bums, you know, and they, they definitely didn't conform to what society wanted them to to do and be. Why was that? So like, what was appealing about that to you? I think when you're young, you're looking to be rebellious, you know, you're looking to test the limits and you're like, oh, I'm not a poser. I don't uh, go along with the crowd. I do what I, I'm an individual. You know, you, you have this ego, this uh, sense of self where I think you kind of want to think of yourselves as an individual and think you're like, oh, I go against the system. I go against societal norms even though you absolutely do and you're just fitting into a different pocket of that but you know when you're young like that is a very appealing uh you know image no yeah it's it's i i think because i know i'm trying to think you know like what was it that initially got me because it obviously the act itself was was super appealing but a lot of what first got me wasn't just the act, you know, it, it was the image of a surfer and being a surfer. And like, um, it, it's a, it's it, a lifestyle. It, it did too. seem to, it, yeah. But like, I know when I pictured surfers, it, it was, I don't know if the word rebellious was for me in my mind, so much an accurate description of what it felt like or more, because like to rebel is like a conscious decision to mm -hmm. act against something, you know, and I, I felt like perhaps skateboarders felt more rebellious to me than surfers, mm -hmm. you know, like skateboarders were at the time, you know, really were like, you know, sticking the finger up at society and were, you know, like causing trouble in, in town and everything. Whereas <laughs> surfers, in my mind, they, they seemed happier, you know, they seemed like almost to levitate above what society was. It, and, it, and I guess maybe that's mm. what it was. You know, it felt like when I, when I pictured a surfer, I, I pictured someone definitely kind of smiling and very confident, um, but almost like, yeah, man, you know, like, cool, you know, <laughs> and, it, was, and it, it just, it, it like basically surfing on top of society, you know, like the society's moving along like a wave and they're kind of skimming along it. And not necessarily laughing at society, because it almost, in my mind, the surfer image seemed unbothered by society. It's like they had something figured out, and and, and they looked, you know, they they looked good, you know, and they looked like they were because the the picture of the surfer for me obviously was, you know, tanned and um, sun bleached hair, and it, it kind of and very fit, and it it made me feel like they were coming from this more beautiful place that I wanted to be a part of that. Um, so I think that's kind of what, yeah, appeals to me. So I can understand the bit of like wanting to be, yeah, not part of normal society. Like at that age, I, 
at, at 12, 11, 12 years old, I don't think I wanted to be a part of normal society. I did like the idea of being part of something more fringe. I think there, there's also like, we should explore like where these images and these ideas came from, mm. right? Like that's, you know, because they all have like a root, you know, in, in the history, you know, cause it, otherwise we, you know, surfing could easily have looked like tennis could easily have looked like many other, you know, sports, you know, I mean, like in Brazil, actually, you know, surfing in the sixties was a very upper class thing and actually, you know, was probably looked at more as like tennis than, than actual rebelliousness or kind of that, that type of attitude. So, I mean, you know, the, the surf culture and the surf identity, you know, I think has like a lot of roots, you know, partially a big, I mean, a huge part is, is the, the Hawaiian beach boys, you know, I think that, that kind of laid back attitude and that kind of beach lifestyle probably had a huge influence and probably the, the, the white, you know, mainlanders who visited Hawaii and then brought, you know, and then started surfing back on the mainland, you know, probably tried to imitate some of that, that lifestyle. No. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think of like where kind of the journey of the surfing image of uh, how it traveled, you know, like, cause it, it had to start somewhere and obviously yeah. it would have started in Hawaii and then moved to California and then kind of got broadcast out to the world from California for various different reasons. Um, you know, like, you know, not least because, you know, California, went, well, I guess that's the thing, you know, not least because California, especially like in the late fifth post-war period mm -hmm. was, you know, the center of Hollywood and it yeah. was the center of, um, you know, where, like, I think, you know, pre-war California was a pretty undeveloped state, but post-war it became the most populated state in the whole nation and then the united states basically you know, like imprinted yeah. its culture on the rest of the world and california had you know was surfing was such a part of and the the california lifestyle um so yeah so well, it's interesting to think back like if we because i know right like even in the 60s and 70s already surfing was taking place in so many different parts of the world and you alluded to that by describing you know like in parts of south america how what surfing was perceived as there. And we could talk about what surfing was perceived about all over the world. But if we're going back to that thing that you were mentioning, the kind of subversive, rebellious, countercultural yeah. image, and you saying it, it didn't have to be that way. What, yeah. what do you think are the roots of the countercultural surfer? Because that's something that, like a trope or stereotype that stayed for a long time. Tom Blake maybe would be something along those lines. I mean, at, at a time when people were living a different lifestyle, he was vegan. He was, uh, you know, not of like a, like a particular religion. He was more of the church of the open sky, you know, mindset. He was quite a tinkerer, inventor, uh, quite creative, but didn't, no, I don't think he was quite the good businessman, you know, or like really good at business, but he was just good at, he was kind of 
from what it sounds like, he sounded like someone who had like some quirks and just, you know, didn't totally fit into, you know, society's neat boxes at the time. And I think he would be a, a big influence. Uh, George Freeth. Now, what, now like be. if you telling people like, you know, what when you say, you know, talking about Tom Blake, like talk about, you know, like when when was he, you know, like hitting his it's, prime? 20s and 30s you know i mean he made books he sold you know his kook box surfboards that were hollow um and he sold them in popular mechanics but he was like living on the beach you know he was living as a kind of like a he took the influence of the beach boys you know he learned to surf you know uh you know waikiki with those beach boys and took that influence and probably brought some of that back with him i imagine george freeth would be another person who grew up, you know, in, you know, in, uh, in Hawaii and then traveled and surfed in other places all around and had that influence too. And he was like a beach boy. He was a beach boy mentality. And you could say that, but when it comes to real rebelliousness, I think, um, you start to maybe look at like a Mickey Dora, maybe, maybe that aggressive rebelliousness, would be something uh, along the lines of Mickey Dora. There's um, an interesting new podcast uh, that you should check out. I haven't listened to the to the whole thing. I just started, but it's called the Lost Hills Podcast, and they explore Mickey Dora and his effect on surfing. Mm. And one of the things they pose on that is like, you know, you had the beach blanket bingo attitude of surfing, and then you had the Mickey Dora, and like it could have gone either way, and Dora's... They, they argue that Dora's influence was for the worse for surfing. Um, I think it's too com- far too complicated to say either or. Uh, but I do mm. think that um, Dora's rebelliousness and, and very anti-establishment uh, attitude set a tone for sure. I mean, he, yeah. he would, you know, I think that definitely set set up a lot of people to follow after him you know, on down to Christian Fletcher and, you know, and, and so many other surfers, you know, today. Yeah. Well, I think you're jumping around quite a bit. Like, yeah, sorry. I think like, <laughs> no, because you said a lot of different things there, which are all really, you know, like kind of planting a lot of seeds, um, as you quite often do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you're thinking back to like, like, you know, what you were saying before, how it wasn't always, you know, super you know super counterculture or anything and that's like um you know a lot of the surfers in california who got into it early even you know surfers around the time of tom blake uh you know people like doc ball and leroy granis and hoppy schwartz you know who started like the palace Verdes surf club uh (laughs) yeah yeah all these pre-war surfers you know and and that's a very interesting period i think the war was like a big dividing line you know, a lot of the pre-war surfers who who did obviously, you know, they were they learned it from people like you know Duke Hanamoku and uh, George Freeth who came over to the mainland to show them everything. Um, but when they did it, they were still part of that culture of being you know kind of respectable and very collegiate and clubby and they, they even had clubs before the war mm-hmm. at you know the pals wrote a surf club and they had rules and they had creeds for how to behave and how contributing to your community was important um and 
so you had that going on, but then I guess you also had like the the Lauren Harrisons and the Peanuts Larsons and the yeah. um, I forget some of the other names who. Yes, I, I, although Woody Brown wouldn't so much. I don't know if he, he'd fall into kind of the. I don't know. I suppose he was quite a different kind of person. I think Woody Brown was 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 kind of a blue blood. I think. I think he was. He from, he was, but he rejected it. He turned. He, he turned away from it, and uh, and then when his uh, wife passed away, he really just kind of gave up on a lot of like the societal norms and kind of just mm. focused on surfing and, and living this enjoyable life, I think. And move, move I, to Hawaii. I guess you're right. Yes. I guess pre-World War, you almost had like three strands going on. You had the Hawaiians who, who were kind of took it back up after the, the missionaries tried to get it out of them. And they were, you know, living you know on the beach they're and they're hustling too by the hustling, way hustling you know totally yes you know and hustling the you know the the, the female tourists and everything and um yeah yeah they they had the that attitude the 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 funny subversive you know cool attitude from the beginning you're right and then you had people like tom blake uh what's it gene tarzan smith tom and yeah, Woody brown tarzan. Maybe Tommy's on came a bit later. A little later, a little he, later. He's yes, Greg sorry. Knowles. Yeah. He's only a little bit older than Greg Knowles. Yeah. So he's. A, I was he's thinking a of the Tarzan kind of guy. guy. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. No, no, Gene Gene Smith. Do you know yeah. about Gene Smith? This this really big muscle guy who used to get yeah. into loads of fights, and you know he <laughs> held like the paddling records, and I mean, there's, there's some incredible articles in Surfer's Journal about his life. He's a very fascinating person. So you had these kind of mainlanders who were rejecting society and trying to escape from it. So I guess they were kind of counterculture. And then you had the the Doc Bowles and the Hopi Schwartzes who and Leroy Granises who were more, you know, part of society kind of surfing. Yeah. And then when the war came out and a lot of them had to go off and fight, you have know, people like, you know, Greg Knoll and uh you know Bev Morgan and um Bing Copeland and all those guys, the Vel, well, not Velzi. Actually, Velzi was a war guy, but he kind of yeah. was like a big brother to all of them. They all, they didn't experience the depression. They didn't experience the war. Really, they, they were all you know kids of the fifties who were yeah. that new baby kind boomers. of punk ass. Yeah, they, actually, I guess they're a little bit older than baby boomers. Yeah, that group. Yeah, they're more the the James Dean kind mm. of age which preceded the baby boomers but they were part of this new youth culture and like i, I think greg Noel once described it he said it was like a switch flipped in the 50s and you had young people who were you know looking forward to becoming older and part of society to all of a sudden you had young people who were wearing nazi jackets and getting drunk on the beach and just and, going wild and, and you can't uh underestimate the influence of the beat uh generation and their influence on uh society and surfers mm. even i think you know they were they were listening to jazz they were you know doing things like taking they were going against a lot of the the societal norms you know they were li- really interested in in kind of a different way of living potentially, you know, and uh, the mm. beat particularly, you know, they, they were the precursors to the hippie movement. And 
those influence surfing as well, of course. But I think, yeah, you had those different strains of surfers. Uh, and then, you, yeah, Greg Knoll, Mickey Dora, all those guys, you know, kind of youth culture, which I think had never really existed like that before in human history. You know, whereas well, it this, might have, but it might have, but, but not, not in, in recent, America, not in modern you know. history, where such yeah. youth culture was was catered to. They had so much upward mobility. They had, you know, so many things coming, new inventions, new everything, and a lot of the advertising and marketing was was starting to gear gear towards youth culture too. And yes, that that would definitely make you, you know start to examine yourself as a youth and start to look at how you, how you behave and start to identify with different things, you know, identifying with the greasers or identifying with the Soshis or the, you know, the surfers or whatever you, you start to identify yourself with a certain, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't have to say like a certain culture almost or subculture. Yeah, well, I think you're right. They all, all the ones, the groups you just described, you know, the greasers, the beats, surfers, uh, rockers, I guess, you know, pre-rock, early rockers, you know, they all kind of came out at the same time, you know, in the 50s. And I guess they'd all grown up, you know, with with a bit of comfort, but also their parents were, were really craving conformity and, and mm. peace and stability after after the depression and the war. And these kids were just bored, and you know, yeah. kind of stifled, and we're really rejecting all that. Although they, as far they also as also had a lot of excess time, they had a lot of excess. Then more time, time. yeah. They had than, cars, than previous generations, yeah. They had cars. They had music. You know, they had and and new ideas being transferred with with information. You know, radio and TV and film, which you didn't have before, I guess. Um, the one thing on the as far as the beats influencing the surfers. Obviously, I wasn't around for that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, in the history of surfing, I think Matt Warshaw puts forth the theory that the beats and the surfers happen at the same time. And, but the surfers had like a dip, like was the beats ha- had a bit of cerebral purpose. You know, they were deliberately like consciously questioning society and trying to, you know, turn it on its head. The surfers were just like, oh, f- Fuck society. We just want to go have fun. You know, and they, <laughs> we weren't thinking so high-minded. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's interesting. So so that, and, and one thing that's interesting is that around that time, and, and like you said, Mickey Dora was, was, you know, kind of coming into the tail end of the 50s, you know, as a teen. He was coming of age at the end of yeah. the 50s. And he was very much what you were just describing. Um surfing started to get a bad image didn't it with society and we will be right back and now back to our show yeah you know and i think um well i think you started to to see the divergence there in in the surf culture where you had the beach blanket bingo type people which were not really um rebellious i would say they 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 were youth culture but they were probably they were all going to be people who probably conformed at some point into society and they were just having their their youth youth youthful angst and then you had like the the doras and the people who 
were really anti-establishment and looking to to kind of never fit into the mold and never you know settle down and you have you know and you could see it with like Fred Hemings you know as he starts to appear in the 60s and he's quite straight laced and then the hippie movement starts to influence I think surf culture uh you know and people start to what tune tune out you tune in, tune out, or oh man, oh, you're it. racing, Tyler. I you're racing. Just, I know, you're but so racing. You're I, missing. I'm some so excited with this. Here. I've got so much to stuff, but it's the hippie culture, which really starts to influence, I think, surf culture, and you start to really see those two things kind of uh, separate, <laughs> right? Well, well, hold on a second. You went straight from the 50s, you know, like where, where the surfers were getting rebellious and being real, like stick your finger up at society yeah. and, you know, mooning, uh, you know, um, trains and, <laughs> you know, and, you know, doing practical jokes. And, you know, like I said, you know, we're, you know, wearing Nazi, you know, yeah, uh, regalia, uniform and stuff. stuff. But that surfing was still quite a small subculture. But then you leap straight to the beach blanket bingo. But that was a massive, massive watershed. It was uh, in 1960 or right at that time in the 50s changing to the 60s is when surfing underwent a massive upheaval. Yeah. And it went from being this hardcore, small, you know, rebellious subculture like like the greases of the beats and things like that to then when Gidget, the book came out and then subsequently the film and then the sequel to the film it went from being this small West Coast subculture. And obviously I know it was going on in different parts of the world, but let's talk about the mass culture yeah. as a whole. To all of a sudden, from almost one year to the next, the whole of America like took on took on the whole surfing craze for several years. Yeah. It was like everybody wanted to look like a surfer or take part in being a surfer mm -hmm. and they said the beaches just went from being pretty empty to just packed with young people wanting to take part in this and 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 people in it was just all of a sudden surfing became this huge thing that teenagers were taking part in and and one thing that was so appealing about it was compared to other all the other cultures was that and you know this is what they say is that the surfers just oozed sex you know they yeah. were if you took pictures of surfers they were half naked they were tan they were muscular um and they were young and uh, and that was very appealing to youth culture at the same time that the beatles were coming on and then all that and but also terrifying to adults as well yeah good point it it's definitely i think I can you imagine what it would be like to have been one of the, you know, like kind of more that core group of surfers. And then like all of a sudden within a year, your spot is crowded and all these people just come in out of nowhere. Mm. And how, how would that influence how you viewed society? How would that influence how you viewed surfing and your relationship to it? Like imagine you have this all of a sudden you know, some of these surfers in their late teens, early 20s, they've kind of defined themselves as surfers, right? That's like who mm -hmm. they are. They're, they're, that's their self-image. And then all of a sudden, all these people want to be that image and try to copy it and be kind of what you call a poser maybe or just wanted to be part of it. And everything is 
just gotten so overwhelmed. Your beach is no longer just you and your friends. There's just all these people out of nowhere. What would that well, do to your mentality? What would that do well, to your psyche? I think those are awesome questions. And and let's think about it. So if you think of the top surfers at the time, you know, the, the previously mentioned people plus, you know, plus others, the way you kind of put it, I my first gut reaction is like, well, you'd want to quit surfing and go do something else. You know, first of all, you go down to the beach, it's super crowded, so that's not going to be much fun. Plus, a lot of the core people who are into it or not into it, it's become mainstream. In a lot of ways, you'd think it kind of lost its appeal. But all those surfers, all those top surfers around that time, did they leave? No, they 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 moved on to other places. Some of them, some not of them yet. decide. Some of them, some of them try to cash in on it. All of them try to cash in in the early <laughs> to mid sixties. Greg Knoll became a titan of the industry. So did, you know, Dewey and, and Dale, well, the Velzio, Hobie, Hobie, Bing, Hap Jacobs, you know, all those people, you know, the slightly older ones, they cashed in. Then all the still the hot surfers, you know, Phil Edwards, Mickey Munoz, Corky Carroll. Um, Corky Carroll. He was still quite young, though. He was still but kind still, of, of the know. slight, he, a slightly yeah. new generation. Mickey Dora, all these people who, were shit hot surfers in the late fifties and right around that time, rather than kind of run for the Hills, it was something appealing to it as well. It was like a dual edged sword. You know, one hand you could say, Oh, this, all the negative stuff we just said, but at the same time, and you said, how would I feel? Well, if I was a shit hot surfer and still young and one hand, I'd be really frustrated by the crowds and the kooks. But at the same time, you'd be all of a sudden the the top dog the super popular mm-hmm. people all the all the people that you know would be attracted to you you know sexually and with all the 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 surfers who weren't attracted to you sexually would be worshiping you as gods one thing you had in the 60s that you didn't have in the 50s was surf media all of yeah. a sudden you had surfers international surfing peterson surfing uh, in Australia, you had Surfing World. You had all these surf magazines came out. These people who were just, you know, well known among their peer group, all of a sudden, were were rock stars, and mm. and movie star. You know, like yeah. Johnny Fain and Mickey Dora and Mickey Minio. They were in all the films, so it was like this. Yeah, well, I don't know what you call it, but uh, it was it was a double edged sword. It's. Yeah, no, I mean, well, you know, it's interesting, right? Surfers are quite possibly the biggest sellouts, (laughs) I think. (laughs) We have a history of totally selling out our sport, and it's happened over and over again, by the way, Mm -hmm. where we've tried Mm -hmm. to make money on the image. So, And the idea is to sell surfing so that you can keep surfing. Right. Like Mm -hmm. you, 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 you know, those guys made boards and created these images so that they can have ideally the more surfing time or so they, they thought, and that they can also obviously make a living off of it and stay kind of involved with it. But I always find it funny. Like there are multiple waves of this in surfing history where people come, they, 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 they start to make money off surfing. They grow to a certain amount, you know, a certain height, and then they kind of get, 
disgusted by surfing in some ways, or they, the, what they're passionate about, they stop surfing or they get into other interests instead. You can see it in so many uh, people who founded surf companies over the years and then they evolve past it or they, they move on from surfing to a certain extent or they find other interests. They take up golf, they start to sail, they do all these other things instead. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting that surfers definitely have a sellout you know, kind of gene in, in them, you know, where we, we definitely, a lot of us try to make money off surfing in some ways, you know, and, and are willing to kind of spoil that specialness of it. Well, are other sports or other sports different from that? Yeah, I think, I mean, no, I, I mean, in ter- I mean, other sports, they all, everything is like about selling out, you know? And I mean, I think like music, you had, a lot of musicians where when they got too big, people would call them a sellout, you know, and, you know, they all all do that to a certain extent. It is just, I don't know. I think it's interesting with surfing, like you you kind of, you know, all those guys in the 50s and 60s who started those brands, many of them left surfing by the end of the 60s. Ah, you know? but that, do, why do you think they left in the in the six, late 60s? I think the sport changed, the image changed, the culture changed, and it wasn't what they recognized anymore. That's my personal yeah, and, theory on it. Well, and also, I mean, all the big, you know, surf companies in the in the 60s, like once the shortboard came along, all of a sudden surfing's popularity nosedived. Yeah. You know, all those people who were buying surfboards and buying surf clothing perhaps um, – they couldn't surf the shortboards anymore. It became much harder and you were sinking yeah. in the water. And all of a sudden, you know, this, the, the consumer base disappeared and, you know, people like, you know, Greg Knoll and being in Hobie, all the, them, well, they, all of a sudden surfboard sales dried up and they couldn't stay in the industry. They, yeah. I mean, they could, but at a much lower profit. And yes, it was a radical shift. It was something that they, one, they couldn't recognize it, but two, they weren't cool anymore. You know, they mm. were older. And so even though they possibly f- had mis- mixed feelings about the popularity of surfing in the 60s, they were still killing it in lots of ways. Um, but all of a sudden, when it went to shortboards and a hippie counterculture, drug culture of, you know, anti-establishment culture of the early 70s, also, they, you know, nobody would have thought, you know, Greg Knoll was cool anymore or anyone like that. So if you were used to being wealthy and cool and all of a sudden you couldn't, and also surfing the short boards was very tricky. It was like, yeah, whoosh, you know, you were kind of swept out of there. Do, do you think, um, I think we should mention John Severson as a mm-hmm. very important figure in surfing's image and mm. self-identity because he's someone who, when he started Sur- Surfer Magazine, it was more straight-laced, a little bit more conformist, you know, to say. And then as the counterculture and everything started to take off, he kind of adapted with that in some ways. He's kind of like a interesting avatar 
for surfing surf culture and surf image maybe well i think with him and you're right it's i mean he very much crafted surf culture you're definitely right about that i mean not only just because he started surfer magazine you know the original um but the way that he made surfer it, it wasn't just that he was the first he did it in such an evocative emotional aesthetically pleasing way you know he yeah. was an artist and he was a film surf filmmaker beforehand and he was a really top-notch surfer as well see he was the perfect person to start it all and if you look at those early issues of surfer magazine they had a certain joie de vivre for lack of a better <laughs> word that a lot of the other surf magazines didn't quite have and you know like 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 Rick Griffins, who, you know, surf art, who, you know, he created Murphy and then went on to be a psychedelic uh, artist, you know, top artist. Uh, but his his surf art, which very much defined, the, you know, surfing culture in the 60s, was heavily influenced by, by Severson's surf art. And it had this kind of trippy, playful kind of play. But... But John Severson, at first, Surfer Magazine wasn't straight-laced. It was actually quite jazzy and beboppy, and True. it was showing this subculture. But then when, when surfing got huge and the combination of the numbers but also the wildness of surfers in the, early, in the kind of moving towards the mid-60s caused all these problems that – as I was alluding to before, when I said that a lot of adults were getting afraid of this youth culture, there's also a lot of literal, you know, like um, local towns, you know, beach towns were actually legislating against surfing because yes. they thought it was you know, like um, anti-social behavior. So they started to put regulations. They were banning surfing. You know, Long Island was a big part of that, actually. Um, and then surfer, because they were scared of losing losing surfing and losing the customers because if people couldn't go surfing, they couldn't buy the magazine. They, they made a concerted effort to try to clean it up. And also the, all the sponsors, all the advertisers, all the surf companies were, yeah. were putting a lot of pressure on John Severson. They said, look, you better clean this up because you know, you got to change the message because we want surfing to come off as respectable. We don't want to lose this whole thing. Um, but then you're right. Then he went that route but then he did what you were describing before. He kind of stopped being super involved in surfing. He got more into golf and the country club and, um, you know, and he was and being yeah. a successful businessman. And then when, he, you know, at one point he was he was leading surfing. He was probably the early 60s. Then the mid 60s, he was kind of just kind of balanced on what surfing was. But then towards the late 60s, it started to pass him by when surfing became, you know, that when the, the hippie movement, when the counterculture started to influence surfing and surfing was moving in that direction and the boards were getting shorter and he was passing, it was passing him by, but then he hired Drew Campion as the editor <laughs> and Drew Campion changed everything. And then this, as the story goes, Drew Campion, you know, came over one time, uh, to their house or, he, or John and Louise Severson were with Drew Campion's one or the other. And Drew, and he said, right, I want to, I want to see what this, you know, marijuana stuff is like. And he smoked it <laughs> and John and Louise Severson apparently this. loved it. 
and it just set off a light bulb and he was like what the fuck have i been up to and just immediately stopped cutting his hair stopped shaving stopped riding such long surfboards and that's when it all he changed with that and surfer as you know as has been said for a couple years there in the late 60s was as cutting edge progressive rolling magazine you know perhaps perhaps more so (laughs) (laughs) and then and then the 70s surfing really took a a a countercultural turn no, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, that's when it really went radically dark. different. I, I mean, I consider it kind of a dark ages type of period in surfing. Not, not that it's a negative thing, but it's just like really surfers really tuned out of society or the culture at least seemed that way. You know, like the the people stopped competing as much. There wasn't as much emphasis on that. There was. You know, localism really started to take root. Uh, surf travel, you know, really started to flourish. Exploration and like all these new kind of surf identities started to take shape and form. You know, well, again, really- as 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 Matt wrote in uh, the history of surfing, you're totally right. You know, he said when the counterculture of the late 60s, early 70s came and they said like surfers kind of went up to the pool, kind of dipped their toe in to just see what it was like. And then they ran back and then they just cannonballed right into the deep end of the counterculture. And I think, yeah, around 1970, if you said, you know, like what's a surfer, you'd think, yeah, just long hair, mystical, meditating, drug smuggling, rebel, badass you know i think i think even like uh maybe it was herbie fletcher who said it but like yeah herbie fletcher said that around that time you know late 60s you know all the rock stars you know hendrix yeah. and the stones uh, or anyone partying you know in the canyons of la you know like when they had a party they wanted to have some cool surfers around and and <laughs> to add to add coolness to it so like it was cooler to have herbie fletcher at a <laughs> at a rock and roll party that it was for um uh, herbie fletcher to have uh jimmy hendrix maybe i don't know <laughs> <laughs> or uh, maybe on par i mean it's it, it, it it's it's interesting because then it, it, you start to see also like these people try to find other means and ways to make a living while continue surfing because the mm-hmm. industry kind of imploded you know, it was still kind of there, but it wasn't as as much of a force it was as it was in the boom era of the mid '60s. And so then you get people trying to smuggle drugs and uh, doing all of these other things. You know, um, how much do you think Ken Casey's quote about surfers being, you know, evolved had an influence on surfers' identity, self identity? None at all, because it was Timothy Leary, Tyler. I'm sorry, Tim- uh, Timothy so- Leary. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. I'm going to go back and erase that. Wait, no. Did you, you know, the British office, there's one um, one scene where uh, Gareth is talking to the nerdy computer guy. And he said something like, remember that scene in, you know, like Way of the Dragon of or Into the Dragon? Yeah. And dragon and the guy says no and he's like what do you mean you've never seen that oh my god you've never seen that bruce lee film he's like no i've seen way of the dragon he's like, oh. <laughs> yep that's me 
<laughs> and I'm the nerdy computer guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the only one who thinks this is cool is me. But <laughs> I know. <laughs> Timothy um, Leary's quote. How do you think that had it? That must have chuffed up a lot of surfers' uh, self-image, you know, and and how they perceive themselves. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I guess it was Steve Pesman was interviewing Timothy Leary around that time when Timothy Leary was quite outspoken on uh, on LSD, LSD and everything and, and the counterculture. And, and he said something along the lines of, yeah, that people are evolving towards this aesthetic state where you're, you know, like one with nature, but you're creating beauty, but not leaving anything behind. And you're kind of you know, uh, perpetuated forward. And he said, surfers have achieved that state. Yeah, you must have been like, if you were a, a, a top surfer at the time who was on those lines, you would have loved that image. Yeah, it must have been. Totally. One, one crazy how quickly the image of surfing changed, both how surfers viewed themselves and how society viewed surfers. Um, <clears throat> but also something that you were talking about is, is very fascinating, how and it's it ties into here by the way i just want to read timothy leary's quote for you real quick because i just pulled it up just think it's pretty good surfers are the throw throw aheads of mankind not the dregs they aren't the black sheep of humanity but the futurists and they are leading the way to where man ultimately wants to be there just, just had to throw that in there. Sorry to ruin your good. flow. You could have waited till I finished this. No, no, <laughs> I got to interrupt you. That's your payback. That's your payback. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, no, what I what I was saying, I was actually praising uh, something you were saying that uh, surfers have always been willing to compromise or affect the image of surfing in an attempt to, to, to facilitate the continuing to surf. So, yeah. you know, whether it be selling out to like, you know, Mickey Dora and Johnny Fane and Mickey Munoz all did stunt work for Gidget and all the beach blanket and Bingham movies, not just stunt work yeah. and ride the wild surf, but also extras, you know, they would, um, they actually had parts in the films. Um, as, as, even though they would criticize it, uh, you know, they're trying to get the quick buck so they could get back to the beach. And then, you know, like all the, the surf ads and, you know, Tom, uh, Pat Curran, even, you know, like appearing in surf ads, you know, yeah. um, you know, the ultimate soul man, you know, selling out so, to get some easy money. So you could keep surfing. It was um, I, in a way, like the way all other sports people do go for the money, but, in going for the money, like if you're a top basketball player and you sell out, you get to play on the best courts in the against the best people. You know, it actually helps your 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 enjoyment of the sport in a way. Whereas surfing, if you start to sell stuff out, then your beach is going to get more crowded and it's <laughs> it's going to make it worse. So, yeah, back to the thing when you were saying that surfers would sell out. At, um, I think it's they sell it as much as everyone, but they have more to lose maybe. Um, and, and that goes right into the next phase of the surfing image. So in the late 60s, early 70s, surfing had this real counterculture image. Mm -hmm. But then in the mid to late 70s, well, you know what happens. 
well, competitive professional surfing starts to take root. And the thing is, these surfers wanted to not only just continue to surf, but they wanted to make a proper living of surfing itself by not just selling you know, running a surf shop or starting or building boards, they wanted to, to be able to compete to surf. They, there was a, uh, particularly the, the Aussie, uh, kind of contingent had a, a more competitive streak. You had, uh, Randy Rarick and, uh, Fred Hemming starting the IPS world tour. Um, you know, which, you know, really, you know, Sean Thompson with his polished looks and his clean cut, kind of image it all really started to be they wanted surfing to be like tennis really and that's right they wanted you know bobby martinez whatever you say you know surfing competitive surfing has roots with tennis i'm sorry (laughs) so if you want to critique competitive surfing and being a a tennis tour well look at history man (laughs) that's what the initial uh you know impetus was they looked at tennis and they wanted it to be like tennis they wanted yeah, I mean, a fucking a, Porsche, you know. <laughs> no, and that's the thing. The the early you know competitive surfers in, in the late seventies they they wanted they wanted the sport to take off because one they wanted to get paid to surf and two they enjoyed competing. It wasn't yeah. just they weren't competing as a sellout, and they knew that to make money of it they needed the sport to grow. They wanted the sport to grow, and to do that they wanted to be seen as sportsmen. Um, and it was, you know, Pete Townsend said, you know, one day we'll be, you know, uh, part of the Jack Nicholas set, you know, you yeah. know, and, and it, what, that was a very interesting, the battle for the image around that time. The soul because, of surfing, basically. Yeah. But, but also like who was winning the contest. So, you know, people like you mentioned Randy Rarick and Fred Hemmings who were running the IPS and, you know, the, the bronze Dawsies, you know, Pete Townsend and, and um, Mark Warren and, and uh, Ian Cairns, you know, they wanted to be seen as, as sports people. You know, they wanted to be seen as Bjorn Borgs and, and, and Jimmy Connors and stuff. But the person at the very beginning who is kicking ass was the ultimate anti-sportsman was Michael Peterson from yeah. Australia, who was super rebellious, super reclusive you know had um you, you know had schizophrenia and had you know a heroin it was, it was a heroin use and his image was very you know you i i quite like i thought it was a very cool image you know it go, <laughs> aesthetically beautiful you know looked cool was rebellious back to what you were saying that was appealing to us as you know slightly you know counterculture and subversive but the, the powers that be hated it because they thought it was bringing down the image. You know, I think even Sean Thompson, you know, he, he, even though he, he probably liked Michael Peterson as a person, he didn't like the image that he was given. And again, you know, like it was written about them. Then it was, it was a tricky one for surfers because surfers didn't really like the idea. You know, I'm talking about normal yeah. surfers who watch pro surfing probably didn't, they liked the idea of surfing becoming big, but they also didn't like it being too clean cut because, you know, surfers, like you said, always like to see themselves as being hardcore, a bit adventurous, a bit wild. Um, and that's why they say that actually the, the person who kind of amalgamated it all, who kind of had the best of all worlds, 
was the 78 world champion, Rabbit Bartholomew. Rabbit. He was yeah. super competitive, super athletic, but also kind of the you know, the Mick Jagger of surfing. And actually, Mick Jagger's kind of like that perfect balance as well. You know, Mick Jagger is rebellious and wild and everything, but at the same time, Mick Somewhat Jagger was very professional and athletic yeah. as well. <laughs> and we will be right back. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And now back to our show. It, it it's interesting because you you have this global. You know, I think there it be the the talk of like the global image of surfing really starts to come into play here too in the seventies. Um, you know, like it's definitely you know the Aussies were more competitive and more in the late seventies at least there was a more competitive drive to surfing mm-hmm. and a more professional attitude towards it. And also the mainstream media took took hold of it in Australia and some big sponsorships started to happen there. And you you really see it professionalizing. But in California, competitive surfing still hadn't fully taken it off, taken mm. off. It hadn't really, you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of the Californians were not that into the competitive surfing, were not following it and showed little interest in it. And then in Hawaii... It was still, it was more, they were still into the more Hawaiian style of surfing and just surfing bigger waves. And you had, obviously, you know, Dane Kealoa and, and Michael Ho who competed, but, you know, like the Larry Bertelmans and, and uh, you know, the BKs and, and all of them didn't find as much success on the, on the pro tour. They did well, but they weren't competing for the world title like the Australians and South Africans really were pushing. Well, I you guess know, also, a- though, with with people like uh, Barry Kaniapuni and even Larry Bertelman and was it, and Lopez and, and uh, Hackman. Um, yeah, well, Buttons, uh, what I was going to say is those other three were a little bit older and were kind yeah. of coming to the tail end of um, their careers. And and Buttons, I, I think, from what I read, you know, he, he wanted to do well in the tour, but he just struggled with competing. Yeah. You know, so he didn't he, his and also what was really frustrating for him is that his surfing was so futuristic that it wasn't getting fairly judged. Um, yeah. Whereas you did have Hawaiians. You, you had Michael Ho, Dan Kalo, Hans Hiedemann, um, even Rory Russell, who was a little bit older, was, you know, a, a very successful pro during that time. I, I think the Hawaiians were OK with the competition. Was well, it they were they, not okay with it? I just don't think it it suited them as much. You know, I don't think they were as driven as the Australians were. You know, in terms of wanting mm. to compete and win world titles. I think not. Not to say that they didn't have that drive, and Dan Kilo specifically. You know, that guy was a beast and an animal, but uh, competitively also. But it's still, I think it didn't. 
in terms of their image and how I perceive it, at least from looking at, at the history in the magazines, like they just seem too cool for it. And not, not in an attitude way, but just their style was so beautiful and cool and laid back that it didn't, you know, feel like aggro or aggressive in that way. It was power and strength and regal almost. Whereas the Australians just felt aggressive and wanting, you know, to just inch away and claw for, to win a world title and to, you know, to compete. Well, also, I guess it has also to do with the, the quality of the waves and a lot of the contests yeah. weren't very good. True. Uh, the Australians, even though they do have really good waves, they were also more apt to surf and, and crap as well. Do you, what do you think about the women and their percent and their image in surfing was, you know, it's really hard to find documentation at this time period of it, to be honest. And it, it, I do think we should mention that at least. Well, I think it's one question, which I was thinking is that the, the image of surfing you know that 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 is that's the the public image of surfing um i think has you know has had a a discouraging effect on a lot of people joining yeah. surfing you know definitely um, i mean cuz obviously you know we've talked about this before once you actually went surfing as a woman as a non white person especially if you were black i think women and and black people if they were if they went surfing you know i think it was literally very uncomfortable going surfing yeah. and not not just and, and you know from this is not me speculating this is what you know black surfers and women surfers have said you know they paddled out and were actually you know frozen out or asked you know to leave you know or made fun of and um you know this is you know historically i suppose so but apart from that like back to the whole you know like what my image of you know in, in the 60 I, what my perception of the image of a surfer in the 60s 70s and 80s and actually you said it yourself and it still is kind of to this day in a way is is a blonde haired white you know male um and if you see that, it's you. It probably doesn't feel very welcoming. So apart from all the practical discouragement, I think a lot of women were probably discouraged from even doing it in the first place. As far as what's women's images, it's interesting. I think if you look at magazines from the early to mid '60s, I think women were probably seen as in a more favorable light than they were in the, in the, in the nineties, probably, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you, you, you'd, I, I think from what people say, and that's the thing, I don't have many magazines from the sixties, but from what I, some, what some people have commented on, you know, people who were around back then, as they said that, you know, in the, in the, in the early sixties, you know, a lot of women were kind of seen as like, there weren't many out there, but a lot of times it was like, yeah, all right, come on, you go surfing. Yeah, let's do it. You know? And, uh, I know there's some people, you know, there are some quotes, you know, I think, you know, was it Fuzzy Trent said women should not go out in big waves because they're too emotional. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I think in general, it was probably they, they were probably given more of a, a fair shake back then. And then post feminist movement in the you know in this late 60s, early 70s, weirdly, um, women i mean the the image of women surfers when we started in the 80s 
I think was really offensive and yeah. um, negative, you know. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's things like saying, you know, like, oh, you know, speculation that if you were a serious women surfer that, uh, you know, that, you know, speculations about your sexuality um, and the, like the whole film, you know, Girls Don't Surf, you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, it also seems. I've never seen Girls unfeminine. Don't Surf. I've never seen Girls Don't Surf. You haven't I've seen, seen it yet. I've seen girls can't. Girls. Can't. <laughs> no, but that's Touché. okay. But there's a better movie called Girls Don't Surf. Touche. It's a, a better one. It's it's you haven't seen the really good one. <laughs> Let's talk about Jeff Spicoli and his influence on surf mm. culture and public mm-hmm. perception of surfers. Because Sean Penn has definitely had a oversized, you know, influence on the public perception of surfing, at least, you know, Let's go. <laughs> Fast Times at Ridgemont High is such a classic movie. And Spicoli has become like, it's become a, a, a derogative word for, you know, of how to describe surfers. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, like, when, when we started surfing, like, people, you know, when I was in, in junior high, you know, people would say, you know, hey, dude, man, hey, yeah. bro, you know, and it would, hey there, dumb surfer dude, you know, like, it was that type of surfer stoner image with that nasally drawl. Um, it, that was a real, real pervasive image for, I remember a good 10 years at least. Yeah, at least more than that still to a certain extent, uh, even there's still reverberations of that. I know, And it's interesting because in one way it was kind of cool, you know, like the, if you just watched the movie and you didn't know what was going to happen as a result of it. It was kind of funny, you know, you probably at the time recognized surfers like that. It was probably not completely inaccurate about some a type of surfer at the time. But essentially, yeah. I was um, reading this old Surfers Journal article about uh, Sandow Burke, you know, the artist, mm-hmm. um, yes. the surfer artist by, by Bolton Colburn. And in the, the first paragraph, it, this is you know, from 1992, I think, you know. But I think it sums up what you're saying there really well. It says, you know, until recently, most contemporary surfer artists have tried desperately to keep references to surfing out of their paintings. It's hard for struggling artists or intellectuals of any sort to buck the stigma of being a surfer. There's only a couple more lines here. It's okay if someone discovers that you have surfed, but God help you if they look at you or your art and think surfing. To the outside world, surfers have second-grade educations, vacuous minds, and overdeveloped sunbaked bodies. And the activity itself, well, it's the very personification of hedonism. Definitely not good Protestant work ethic. <laughs> Bill Finnegan is another person who tried to hide that he was a surfer for a long time also, especially right, during this period the when New he was Yorker. trying to be taken serious as a writer. You know, so it's, it is mm-hmm. like it became a really bad negative stigma that so many surfers had to live with, I think. No, and I remember in the early, you know, like prior to 2000, probably like a lot of 
every so often in a surf magazine, they'd be like, look at this person. They surf, you know, like this yeah. he's a surfer. But 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 there uh, there was like a Nobel Prize winner who surfed or um, if you heard that, you know, like a teacher surfed or a, a politician, it was like, whoa, you know, like, look, we we can do that in, in, in a way, the way that you like um, a, a marginalized a group of society might say, look, you know, we can accomplish this too. We can accomplish that. It really, the image of surfers, it's, it's so funny. Like, I never want to say that I felt depressed. I was set really low really. for a while. <laughs> but at the same time, you did feel like, um, you, yeah, it was weird. It, it slightly felt like you were a part of a, a stigmatized group. It was, it was very strange. Yeah, well, especially with like, the way Hollywood portrayed it, and and it it got portrayed in media from Spicoli onward. It was like any time there would be a surfer in a movie or something, it was Spicoli esque. I mean, be, look at Back to the Beach. Even you know uh, the characters there are very Spicoli esque. Um, you look at uh, you know Saved by the Bell. They would have a surfer, and it would always be Spicoli esque, and that was the the um, public perception of surfers, but then what the surfers thought of themselves through throughout the, I think the eighties and into nineties, there was like, you had competitive surfers, you had punk surfers, surfers who kind of took on a punk ethos, you know, especially punk rock, particularly you had, uh, you had like all these different subsets start to form. You had soul surfers, you know, that word, that term entered a lexicon thanks to North Shore, the movie even. You know? No, that was around in the, in mean, the 70, before, early but, 70s, soul surfing. Yeah, but that entered like it the big real, the like, 70s. it became so much more. You think? I, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't around then. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, from anything I've I read, you know, soul surfing was like, you know, a Seventy-six. Obviously, I know when Chandler says not to us soul surfers, you know, but I think that was kind of the death yeah. knell. I think when North yeah. Shore came out, it was kind of the last, like a swan song for the idea of the soul surfer. And, and Surfer Magazine did a whole issue on soul surfing. Yeah. Do you remember that remember one? That. And, you know, they asked yeah. top surfers, you know, what's your definition of soul surfing? And... It yeah. was interesting. Yeah, remember, Richie Collins said, you know, like, I never go surfing. I only surf for competition. Um, but then and, and Tom Curran, actually, this is, you know, what what made you makes me aware of how surfing, soul surfing was a 70s thing. You know, he, he said when he thinks of soul surfing, he, he, he thinks of references to drugs, you know, in the 70s. Um, I think that was his answer to the question. But, uh, yeah, it's it's funny, the whole pro versus soul thing like i feel like nobody talks about that anymore no because you can kind of be both you know you can go on a on a surf trip and do the soul thing or you can go and still compete too um but it, it it's still there you still have like you know tor and martin would be a you'd probably call a soul surfer maybe or dave rostovich mm -hmm. and you wouldn't really call maybe gabriel medina or idolo uh, a, a soul surfer in that 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 perception of it, you know, they're they're very competitive and very energetic. Whereas a soul surfer, you think of as kind of mellow, a little bit more low key, a little less like flash, and a little bit more kind of, you know, under the radar type of mentality. 
No, you're right, and not non-competitive. You're right. Yeah, uh, there, that is uh, still around. When do you think the Spicoli image, though, kind of dropped away? Because that's not really the image of. I don't think people today, like the general public, I don't think if yeah. you asked, "What do you think of a surfer?" I don't think they would be like, "Oh, awesome," you know, like, "Hey, dude," you know, like. I think I think the early two thousands, it started to slip away you started to see more mainstream uh big budget type of films like riding giants and step into Mm. liquid which started to highlight surfers from different uh aspects of the surfing community who were you know respectable people so kelly slater probably a big part of it kelly slater probably had a huge part of that you know being uh you know kind of on you know i mean baywatch I don't know if that did any good or not, but <laughs> be, but the whole momentum generation in general being kind of, they had in the, the, that early 90s, they were kind of promoting this drug-free lifestyle. They didn't drink, they didn't party. They were just good competitive kids. That was kind of the perception that they put out there, at least in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. Yeah, and and both the films that you referenced before, like, Laird Hamilton was front and center on those, and he was kind of the face of surfing to the general public. Yeah. You know, and he was more, much more this modern outdoor athlete that so many, I mean, Laird, Laird Hamilton's probably had yeah. more of an impact on public perception of surfing than, than perhaps any single actual pro surfer. Like obviously Jeff Spicoli had a massive impact and yeah. Gidget had a massive impact. Um and, and Mickey Dora maybe had a subliminal impact and Tom Blake set the the um the template for what a surfer looks like, you know, the blonde hair and mm-hmm. um, you know, casual lifestyle. But then Laird Hamilton, you know, like you go down to the beach now and it's a lot of people's into fitness and stand-up paddle boarding and foil boarding, and they Laird, the Laird Hamilton set that. Um, they're running with rocks underwater, and uh, right, you know, they're 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 drinking espresso and having his coffee creamer in it, and uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know, they're taking ice baths and all mm. of that sort of. You know, it's it's definitely turn into the you know that ocean that waterman lifestyle yes that's it laird really helped to define even though that Mm -hmm. had been around for a while but he helped really uh put that into the uh the the zeitgeist you know the pop culture zeitgeist of what surfing Mm -hmm. is he really took on that waterman lifestyle and that really appealed to more jockey people maybe and brought more jockey type of people into surfing potentially yeah, um, and more adults, more yeah, adults more, into surfing. Absolutely, because because Laird Hamilton didn't look he he was not a teen icon by any means. By when by the time he was really famous, he was he was somebody that older people could aspire to, to to be yeah. to look up to and emulate and look like. Well, you know, <laughs> let me let me ask how how much do you think like. Um, the money, like wealthy people being able to buy their way into surfing has affected surfing and surf image. You have all these wealthy people. You see Mark Zuckerberg, you know, going out with his pal Kai Lenny 
You have, uh, you know, if you go out to Montauk, how many freaking rich people, you know, have paid for private surf lessons and paid for private surf tours and have rented out Kelly Slater's wave pool. I wonder how Mm. much that is having an effect on surfing and whether you're seeing like this disparity of surfing where there's like an ultra elite now of surfing and surf surf culture. And then there's the more, you know, kind of everyday surfers, blue collar surfers. I don't know. Like I'm, I wonder how much the money has had an effect on surf culture and surfing's identity over the last 20 so years. Because it feels like there's been a huge influx of that. Definitely. I mean, with wealth has permeated surfing big time, not least because the desire to live by the beach has really gone up. You know, I think, you know, when we were younger, you know, there are a lot of beach towns were were working class towns. And, you know, I'm again, we have spent a lot of time probably describing american and, and australian surf culture um yes so but it's but it's, but if we are going to use that <laughs> um it, it, and we can only speak from our perspective places, really yeah <laughs> too well all these places you know for one to live by the beach has become astronomical you know like it, it wasn't really desirable to live by the beach before and now everyone with money has you know, driven up the prices so you have to have a lot of money to live at the beach um and also because of the type of equipment, you know, like when we started, you know, it was mostly shortboarding. Um, mm-hmm. So now with, you know, you could spend money on, well, you could spend money on surf camps, spend money on lessons. You could spend money on, on bigger boards that are easier to surf. You could spend money on standard paddle boards. Anyway, it's, yeah. it's attracted a lot of wealth to the sport, but in some weird way, maybe that's, also made it more accessible to a lot of people who aren't necessarily wealthy because potentially surfing is if you go to the beach first of all the image of surfing now is not this cool exclusive young you know like it's pretty intimidating if you think that most surfers are ages 15 to 25 and male and really hardcore serious about it and really expert about it. That's a hard, you don't want to go mix yourself in with that. But if you go down Teenagers to the beach and you see me. a, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Teenagers That's scare a good, the fuck out of me. <laughs> you should get a, a t-shirt that says that. I think that would sell well. Whereas if you go down to the beach and you see a lot of people aged, you know, 30 to 60 who are learning to serve, um, it's not that intimidating. And then all of a sudden, you know, like they're going to bring their, you know, people with money are going to bring kids with them, you know, who are going to try it. And there's going to be women who come to it. And then once that starts to happen, then it starts to make it okay and more acceptable for lots of other people, you know, to come who aren't necessarily wealthy um, people. Um, I mean, I know I was listening to Jamie Brizick's interview with uh, Salima Masakela today. Have you listened to that? The new sound surface journal no. soundings. And he said, like, now surfing is so much more approachable for lots of different ethnicities and, and genders. You know, he said that, well, one, it's not just, you know, a few big surf companies and surf magazines deciding what the image is it's 
you know, what you've said before, you know, the democratization of surf media, it's loads of people telling surfing stories and you go on Instagram or YouTube and you can see lots of different types of people surfing now, yeah. different religions, different ethnicities, different genders surfing and different spins on surfing too. Different like spins on surfing. Yeah. And maybe it, I, it's fun. I don't know if there's a direct tie between wealth being attracted to surfing yet yet having the unusual side effect of making it a little bit more okay for everybody. I don't know. And we will be right back. And now back to our show. That's an interesting theory though. And I, I, I imagine that definitely probably has a little something to do with it. I think that I think the proliferation of surf schools in general have have opened that door and and then uh you know mm -hmm. i also think society definitely influences surfing and people looking over the last five to ten years have been looking more inward about certain things like that like uh what is uh you know looking at you know the acceptance of other people and being open to bringing more people in and and not making it so exclusive not gatekeeping to it I think there's there's more of that type of mentality, adding you know diversity and you know all of those things. Like companies have looked to do that, and society is looking to do that and try to change that percept that attitude. So I do think that a lot of that happens, and and I, it is interesting. Like surfing has influenced culture, and culture has influenced surfing. There's like this really interesting thing you could see throughout modern surf history. Um, you know, surfing having its impact on culture and then it, culture obviously having its impact on surf culture too. You know, it's kind of mm. interesting to see those two play off each other throughout yeah, back you know, with, the like last what we described 50, before. years. Yeah, yeah, like with the hippies influencing surf culture and then the surfers yeah. taking And then surf fashion, it. right? Like in the 80s and 90s, you know, and Quicksilver, Billabong, you know, it was... Uh, seen as some, those companies and those products were seen as something you could only get at a surf shop and they were seen as kind of cool. And then definitely in the 90s when they went public, you know, that definitely in the growth of it helped uh, expand surfing too and its image and mm -hmm. reach. Those companies have had a tremendous impact on surfing, uh, you know, culture and the way it looks, whether we, we like it or not, you know, uh, and the magazines, of course, too, they did gatekeep surfing for a long time. And the democratization of surfing in the last 20 years has really changed the perception of surfers. And it's and also the growth. Surfing has gotten so big. There are now there's no homogenous culture anymore. It's just lots of different people who happen to surf. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's interesting to think. Um you know, what is the image of surfing? Is there an image of surfing now or has it just become a, a, an activity that lots of pe different people do and there isn't really the image of the surfer anymore? I think there are subsets of the surfer. I think there's, you know, I don't think, I don't know if surfing you could say is a subculture anymore, really. It's part of the main culture in many ways. Um, but I think there are subsets of, of people who are into certain types of surfing or certain types of boards or certain, you know, they, they follow a certain aesthetic that, and it's, it's all under one big umbrella. 
Yeah, like music. Yeah, yeah, there's different exactly. Types of genres exactly. Of what? Well, uh, so has your like image of yourself as a surfer then has has that changed? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've gotten older. I'm an old, I'm an old guy now. <laughs> so I obviously look at myself a little differently than when I was a kid. Um, I'm also obviously not as rebellious and don't have that anti-establishment uh, attitude as much anymore. Um, I think I still probably have a bit of an ego when it comes to surfing, and I think I, I, I think what I have now is probably a certain sense of entitlement to surfing and not, not in a mm. negative way. I don't, I don't see that word having, it doesn't have to have a negative connotation. Like I see myself as entitled not to getting any wave I want, but I think I am someone who knows surfing very well and knows its history. And I've been at this break in, in New York. So I see myself as like an elder statesman of surfing in some mm. ways, even though I'm not that old. But and what are you? What I are you see entitled myself to? as. Uh, I'm entitled to to knowing like, what is good surfing? What is you know uh, what is cool about surfing? Maybe having a certain having to have your opinion, opinion respected. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and and of course, like, <laughs> and no if, one can. If call you me don't out. like it, tough. You gotta you gotta listen to us anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but also in the lineup, I feel like I definitely have a certain, like I feel like I belong out there. I have a place out there, and if anyone wants to mm -hmm. give hassle me or whatever, I feel like, my man, I've been surfing thirty five plus years. Like you're gonna try to tell me what is, what the etiquette is, or what is and isn't surfing okay out in the lineup, like that sort of stuff too. Has, uh, has that happened much to you? Um, I've had people drop in on me and then be like, try to argue it and i'm like yo <laughs> what are you talking and they're not they haven't been surfing as long and they're trying to tell me what the etiquette is and i'm like you dropped in on me you're in the wrong <laughs> i have been doing this a lot longer you can't tell me what is what i know <laughs> so yeah do you know who i am <laughs> you know who i am i'm kind of a big deal i have many leatherbound books my place smells rich mahogany it is funny i it's so funny those things that get aroused in you and so it's like when someone cuts you off on the road like i've had times yeah i don't know what it was you know like in the water where maybe it was almost a perceived slight even you know maybe mm -hmm. it hasn't even come to a slight on me and i've wanted to just like make up something i've wanted to say to the i've want i've fantasized myself saying do you know who i am and actually just make up like I actually was the first surfer to ever surf this place. And I <laughs> I just want to like make something up to just, and, and I can really imagine in real life. If they heard that, they'd be like, I have a surf podcast care? on surf history. Do exactly. you know who I am? <laughs> and the thing is, if someone Sorry, heard that, they'd probably just say, the fuck do I care? <laughs> fuck off, mate. <laughs> So, um, what about you? What about your perception of yourself in surfing? How has that changed? It's interesting. In a way, 
it's especially because you don't live so close to the coast you know yeah 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 in a way it's almost i think i think soon after i started surfing my self-image and my image of what a surfer was drifted away from my initial image of what a surfer was you know that image of being almost I don't want to say ethereal um, because it was very earthy, you know, my perception of what a surfer was. But um, I don't know if I can actually describe it. But in a weird way, I almost feel like I'm coming back or want to come back to what my initial image of what a surfer was. Because I think it got... Um, Jamie, got the blonde hair. Promoted. Your hair is never going to grow well, back. Well, that's the hard part. I, <laughs> I can look like Mr. Clean. <laughs> you look like i'm gonna dye like... my eyebrows i'm gonna dye my eyebrows white and my <laughs> that's what or, i'm gonna do actually i'm gonna dye or, my eyebrows and my beard white or you can go with the gordy look remember gordon the guy in lincoln that we used to surf with that we thought looked like the guy from sesame street yeah, well, I don't think I could pull off the mustache so well. But I am. Um, no, you've really given me some excitement now. I think what I'm going to do, because I've got a bit of a tan going from my trip to Spain now, I'm going to get a whole bunch of white t shirts and white trousers, and I'm going to dye my beard white and my eyebrows white, and I'd get some golden earrings. And I, that would go with kind of my groovy old surf dog, kind of like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't wait to wake up tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, so do you know what time it is? It's yep. time for Stump, Stump My, my Row. So I totally cheated for this one. You cheated. What you asked yeah. the question? What, how did you cheat? I went into Surfer Magazine, January nineteen eighty nine, Volume thirty, Number One, and pulled out some questions from their endless trivia quiz. Oh, <laughs> that's really cheating. But does it pertain to the topic at hand, though? No, it doesn't. But it's still fun. I just oh, thought it'd be fun. That's not what to we do. do. You're su- no, the stumps are supposed to do with the topic. Mm. Kind of does. Right. Has well, has I've to do with th- the endless summer, which has a huge impact on surf culture and its perception. Okay. By the way, which we kind of kind of glanced over. We didn't even talk about that. By the way, that should be mentioned. No. Endless summer had a tremendous effect on surfing and surf culture and uh, and its image. So it should be said at least. Yeah, <laughs> interestingly though, I kind of feel like the endless summer influenced the image of the act than the image of the surfer itself. Mm. You know, like I don't feel like people walked away thinking. Like, I don't think there was, like, this big change. Like, now people think of surfers as Mike Hinson and Robert August. You know, like, I think that was kind of in place already. Whereas I think all of a sudden surfers got the idea that, ooh, we could travel endlessly looking for perfect waves. So it was more the image of the act than the surfer. totally. Well, I've got three questions. How many have you got? I've got 40 here. You've got four. 
Okay. Well, how about you could ask the you first, go first. And you the go fourth. first. You go you go first. Okay. You go first. Okay. So um which top surfer does this has to do with image and the in the public's mm-hmm. perception of them? Which top surfer dyed their hair black to gain more anonymity when they got too famous? They also, this this person also had their very own surfing TV show that was called the Mm-mm-mm Surf Show. The Mm-mm-mm is their name. Gosh. I do not know this one. It's not Marty Thomas, who also dyed his hair black. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely not Peter King, who had a bit of a spat on, on MTV. That's uh, true. He did have a TV show, but not the Peter King show. No, not definitely not. Thank God. Um, PT had a surf show also, but I don't remember him dyeing his hair black. Oh, um, was that like local access TV yeah, show, right? Yeah. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. That was pretty cool. That was um, pretty cool. Mike Latronic had a show on uh, also H3O, but he didn't. But I don't think Mike Latronic was worried about uh, his fame <laughs> getting in the way of things. Although he did uh, do the, the stunt work for Rick Kane, I think. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, lay it on me. Who was it? Midget Fairley. Oh yeah, when he got um, back from winning the Makaha contest, uh, he was kind of overwhelmed by all the media attention and the attention he got at the beach. So he dyed his hair black to kind of like you know go incognito. And then a few years later, he hosted um, a TV show called The Midget Farrelly Show. I think it was shot by Paul Witzig, um, and apparently it was really good. Mm. <laughs> Um, influencing you, the image of surfing. <laughs> so, what do uh, surfers call their bathing suits in Durban, South Africa? Oh, I'm going to come up with a couple tries here. Do they call them clam diggers or dags? <laughs> uh, so, no, no, because those those were names for um, ones. Um, I don't know. What were they called? Um, I think it was um, <laughs> swimming costumes. The answers aren't in the in the in the magazine, oh. by the way. No, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what in all in all Commonwealth countries they they're called swimming yeah. costumes. So yeah, that's the yeah. same here. <laughs> and it's not swimming trunks. No, it's speedos no. or swimming costumes. That's right. So. So yeah, no, <laughs> not that wrong, Ty. Ask me another one. That's okay. You didn't even know the answer. To, you got to know the answer. I know. <laughs> Surely it tells you yeah. it on another page. No, no, it's in the next issue. Oh my god! What's your next question? And it's like upside down. <laughs> um, let me see here. Um, all right. This has nothing to do with anything of our topic, but I, I wrote this one down because it was fun. Um, who won the first Billabong Pro on the North Shore? The first one on the North Shore? Because I know there yeah. was one like a Duran Bath that first uh, happened. North Shore. The North Shore. That was part uh, of the Triple Crown. 
Yeah, was it not Mark Richards? Nope. Oh. Although he was who a was two-time it? winner of it. He was a two-time winner early on. Who was the Is first it's... North Shore Billabong Pro winner? Uh, Hans Hedeman. Or Hedeman, whichever you want to go with. It's Hedeman, yeah. <laughs> and that's the Billabong, not the Trim World Cup. You nope, sure? nope, it's the Billabong. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's sunset? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just uh, <laughs> found it in the magazine. Uh, okay. Well, send me a, a screenshot. I want to see that. Yeah. I don't <laughs> <laughs> All right, which um, this one's a fun one. Which an, another thing to do with the image to the greater public. Which famous surfer was asked on a on another TV show, not Midget Farley mm. show. Uh, um, they were asking questions from the audience, and the presenter was just kind of reading them off. You know, didn't really look at the questions first. And after he asked this question, I think he kind of was like oh shit he said um he asked the famous surfer he said you know um so um this this surfer wants to know what does the surfing term beating off mean <laughs> i don't know this one <laughs> i don't know this one's a good one <laughs> it was a good one <laughs> well it was greg Knoll, and uh greg Knoll kind of rolled with it and he said uh Ah, well, gee, I never heard that one before. <laughs> well, that's a new one for me. Uh, of okay. course, the presenter, after they asked, they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um, where did Mike Hinson and Robert August surf on Christmas Day in New Zealand? On Christmas Day in, in the New end Zealand. of summer. Uh, was it at Raglan? Yeah. Nope. Or was it at Ahipara? Yep. There you go. Yeah. I went there. There was no surf when I was there. No. I got it. I drove along the point. Did you? We got it so pumping, Brad and I. And it was started out as a shit shit wave. We were surfing like we drove up a little bit and found like a little crumbly right, actually. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the tide changed. And then we were surfing like hundreds of yard lefts that were just smooth as silk and just so buttery good with like only a handful of people out. That must be incredible. That wave. Oh, dreamy, dreamy. Well, well in that, in the summer scene when they were surfing there on New Year's day, what did, um, because it was uh, summertime in December, what did Bruce Brown say that New Zealanders thought, uh, uh, Santa Claus was, uh, a surfer? I don't know. <laughs> no, they thought he was a guy who hung around the beach in his Bermudas, <laughs> which is That's another word one. for board shorts. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to round this out with the last right. question. It's round kind it of a two part question. Okay. Um. So the first part is so well. Uh, um. In 1961, the United States Surfing Association was started. Um. Well, I guess you know, you know, went on to be the you know the the um, you know the first major North American organized surf contest association. I think Australia already had one mm. in that place, um, and it, this eventually led to the WSA and you know the ESA and the USSF and all that. Well, um, why was it started in the first place, though? Why was it started? To have yeah, why surf did they competitions? 
so they can see no. who's the best? <laughs> no, no. It was, in fact, at first, it wasn't even meant to have surf contests. Um, but it, it's it, it, basically they wanted to improve surfing's image. Back to what ah. I was saying before, you know, with all the what John Severson was doing with surfer, you know, like trying to fight the bad surfer image. And um, in fact, I think one member wrote something along the lines saying, you know, like. Right now, you know, there uh, about five percent of surfers are the ugly surfers, causing problems, you know, for us. And if there are about fifty thousand surfers in the United States right now, that's five thousand surfers, and and it's it's going to take more than five thousand good surfers to counteract the bad ones. So we need to form a big USS Surfing Association. And wow. I think at first, m- most people didn't really join it. You know, they're like, oh, what are we going to join this big association for? But then once they started to introduce contests, then people are like, oh, hey, cool. Yeah, I want to surf in contest. Um, so, and, and, and someone had written, uh, I think it's Russ Kalish wrote this. He said, you know, that's the thing. You know, you, if you give society a winner, a champion, no matter what the sport, it'll become something they could not only understand, but they could cheer and hopefully protect. And that was kind of the mission of the USSA. Um, but, which kind of very notable historic surfer was the first president of the USSA? And let me tell you, he also went on to become the first president of the WSA, you know, the Western Surfing Association. Um, he ended up drafting the documents that would become the framework for the USSF, which ended up, you know, kind of overseeing, you know, um, you know, like surfing all across America, um, in the world amateur contests. Um, and he actually, he was... He, he was inducted into the Surfing Magazine Hall of Fame in 1966, um, and he kept active until 1988 uh, when he was on his way to a WSA event in Santa Cruz and died of a stroke. And he was a good friend of the great photographer Leroy Grenis. Who is this surfer? Oh my gosh. Can I use a lifeline? <laughs> no, I could give you a, a, a slight clue. I thought for years until I saw the Jerry Lopez movie, really, I, I thought for years that this surfer was also the owner of Surfline, who, you know, who uh, Jerry Lopez used to shape surfboards for and but then became a competitor of Lightning Bolt and, uh, you know, may have. Oh. may have uh, burned down the Lopez, the lightning bolt store. I thought this person was that person, but it's not. They just had the same surname. So if you know the surname, of, if you watch the Lopez movie, you'd remember who the surname is, and that would help. I forgot. I'm sorry. I'm out. Okay. Well, so the bad guy, the, the, yeah. not the bad guy, the, 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 the um, head of Surfline was Fred Schwartz, but this surfer was Louis Hoppy Schwartz. Ah. And Hoppy Schwartz, I've read a lot about. You know, he was he was a member of, you know, the I think the Pals were at a surf club and he was he was really good looking, guy, cool guy. He was a, a maths high school teacher and he was he was very much a heavy influential surfer. They don't really talk about him anymore though. Um, but he Interesting. was a major influence. Well, so, yeah. well, well that we covered a lot of ground in this episode. We did. We certainly did. Well, um, listeners, uh, if we got anything wrong, 
let us know. You can uh, find us on Hardcore Surf History uh, on Instagram. And uh, you can check us out there. And, of course, we're on the Surf Splendor uh, Podcast Network. So don't be a stranger. Feel free to write in and uh, correct us, if you will. Or give us your opinion on things. And we may or may not uh, read it in the next episode, whenever that is, in the next six months at some point. Uh, But yeah, and uh, otherwise, um, hope you all uh, enjoy the episode, and uh, we'll see you all down the line. You can't go sleep at home.